All right, so I've got Matt Inglis Fox on the podcast today, and Matt is the CEO and content director of Sweat Elite. They've built a following of 124,000 YouTube subscribers for showcasing how elite distance runners train. Matt is also a pretty accomplished runner himself, with times that stretch from 147 in the 800 to 220 in the marathon. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Joshua. Appreciate it. I don't often do podcasts where we're both in the same time zone or very close. So uh, thanks for making this easy for me, two to Australians chatting. But um, no, I appreciate the intro. There was one little thing. I didn't run 147. I ran 148 about 20 times. Uh, so I'm not sure where you pulled that from. Yeah, I, I, I really, I feel like I should have run 147. I know that might sound stupid to hear, but I ran 148 a, a, a lot of times. I never quite broke it. But um, yeah, that was a while ago now, though, back in the, back in the early 20s. Would have been 147 with super shoes, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Say so, based on what I've heard, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so I'd love to dive off at the start into a bit of your story of how you started Sweat Elite because I know I came across Sweat Elite back in 2017 uh, when a friend sent me a video of you on the back of a motorbike alongside Kip Chogi on this muddy path in Kenya and... I just remember at the time being like, whoa. And this was like right at the time when Kipchoge was becoming really big with the sub two attempt. Yeah. So how, how did that all come about and how did you start Sweat Elite and where did the idea come from? I think quite a lot of people discovered the brand around that time. I'll dive into how that happened, the Ilya Kipchoge and the motorbike thing in a moment. But I guess the the story of, of Sweat Elite can date probably back to really when I started running. I was a, you know, really wanted to make the Australian Football League as a as a teenager. Was sort of playing in the you know Queensland team. Probably not one of the more prominent dominant players, but sort of always you know making those teams as a 14, 16, 18 year old, seventeen year old. And then I I was pretty badly injured in the year that that you would normally get drafted when you're seventeen. So I was I was sidelined and I I had a wrist uh, a broken wrist. So. I, uh, I started to, in my mind, I was thinking, in order, if I want any chance to make the AFL next year, I need to be winning all of these running fitness tests. So the 3K and the 100, I think there was a 100 meter sprint, but the 3K was a, was a pretty big fitness test. So I got as fit as I could basically over, over the middle distances and performed pretty well in my last year of high school in the 8 and 1500. Now, ultimately, at the end of that year, I decided to continue with running and I thought my chances of making the AFL were very, very slim at that point. So I started as a middle distance runner and sort of tried to qualify for, you know, world junior champs and Olympics in the following sort of six or seven years. And then I took a couple of years away from the sport when I was about 26, 27 and and actually was working full time in an office job doing something completely different to, to, to what I'm doing now. And I, and I, you know, I don't really want to dive too much into that, but wasn't really for me. So I, I really missed running around that point. And some of my friends were still doing marathons and so forth. And it was right around 2016 when I was, uh, I must have been, what, almost 30 at that point that I came back to running and started started Sweat Elite. I thought to myself, when I was competing as a middle distance runner, there wasn't there wasn't great media out there. There was, you know, there was Runner's World that was really tailored to the uh, the beginner runner or, or the, maybe the person that wants to break 20 minutes for 5K or three hours in a marathon, which, you know, they're no easy feats in themselves. But um, there was no media company that was, well, there was very few tailored towards people that were really serious about running and that really wanted to sort of go as far as they possibly could and, and maybe even try to qualify for a team. So that's when it was born. And originally it was actually something pretty different. It was a, it was a mobile app that was a little bit like Strava. And we, we sort of didn't do very well at that. We sort of got got crushed by some of the big brands such as Strava. 
Uh, and then I turned it into a blog, basically, just interviewing athletes about their training, and it sort of snowballed from there. So we, the first year or two, it was just articles. Uh, then we added a podcast in 2017. And then I think the point where we sort of became a bit of a name worldwide, or at least people got to know us, was when we went to Kenya and, and did the stuff that you saw on YouTube. And we really, we were really flying under the radar there. We, we didn't, didn't really know what we were doing. It was me and my colleague Tate, who I'm actually visiting this week when I'm back here in Australia, and uh, he's a doctor now. We, we just basically turned up to Kipchoge's uh, training setup, knowing that he was about to try to break the world record in Berlin in, in, in three months' time. And we, we just asked him if we could join him for a couple of runs and film it. And at first he was like, yeah, I mean, if you've come all the way out here to the middle of nowhere, why not? Because <laughs> it's a long way. It's, it's very remote, Africa. So yeah, we, we joined in for a couple of runs and then, you know, there's obviously a lot more that's come after that, but uh, that's how it started. That's the short, short answer, really. Wow. That's really incredible. So you just rocked up and he was like, yeah, come along. I think he was pretty surprised because, you know, where he lives and trains, it's very remote. I mean, it's, it's you know, most people wouldn't be able to find it. They wouldn't know where to go. I just, we just kept asking people where the NN Global Running Camp was and we eventually found it. And he was pretty open to the idea of it. I don't think many Westerners go out there and, and, I mean, especially then, like he wasn't super famous at that point. He obviously became mega famous the year after when he, when he ran 159 at that, uh, that setup event in Vienna and then kept breaking his own world record. That's when he became really mega famous. But the time that we went, he was sort of just an Olympic gold medalist at that point. He, I don't believe he had the world record or maybe he'd just run the first one. But either way, he was not sort of really mega famous at that point. So we sort of got away with it. But um, I don't know if you'd be able to do that again now turn up and film in like that that's a pretty awesome founding story wow and then i also remember at this time i remember just being so desperate for like running content because there was almost like no one out there doing video content for runners and i remember like flow track was doing a little bit and but the main people i watched were like running youtubers in college like it was like Spencer Brown or um, Zach Levitt a couple of those people and then around like 2020 2021 you guys really started releasing a lot of really big videos of like how the elites were training. So what kind of brought about that pivot and, and what was that like? Yeah, good question. It, it's almost like when we started in 2016, it was a blog with training information. So it was basically just me interviewing a good runner and then sharing all their training and their build up and how, how they've basically produced this result. And in the next couple of years, a few other blogs came out doing the same thing. So it was always in my mind like, well, how do we sort of stay ahead of the competition? How do we sort of stand out? So in 2018, we added a podcast. And then in 2019, 2020, a whole lot of more podcasts sort of came out. And I'm not saying people were copying us. I'm just saying that's just the, the evolution of how technology worked. You know, it became a lot easier around 2015, 2016 to start a blog and get your own hosting. And then in 2017, 18, same thing with podcasts. And so in 2019, I thought, you know, how are we going to stay ahead of this? There's a lot of good podcasts coming out. There's a lot of good websites coming out, but there's very little uh, good video content. Like you said, uh, Flowtrack did a little bit, uh, but not that much. They actually did quite a lot more in sort of between 2010 and 2015. I'm not really clear why they slowed down, but I thought in 2019, in order to really take this to the next level, we're going to have to do you know video content on YouTube. And so I, I sort of shifted to Boulder in January 2020, and we were hoping to launch the videos shortly after that, but we all know what happened in March 2020, <laughs> uh, and that really put a halt to our plans, and many businesses obviously had to change their strategy or their, their trajectory at that point for a little while. And then I came back to Australia. I, I stayed for about a year here, a little bit longer, 
And then I ultimately went back to Boulder in March 2021 and then launched into the videos straight away. So I think we put the first one online at the start of May, I believe it was. And then we've been publishing, yeah, probably between four and eight a month ever since, sometimes even more. We've taken a really small break now because we haven't actually had a break for about two and a half years on the video content, but we're about to get back into some uh, video content in Japan in the next uh, month or two. So that'll be good. Yeah, so it's always really just been about trying to stay ahead of the game and be, you know, the purple cow, so to speak, the the, the, the company that's that's standing out and that's doing something a little bit more advanced than the others. And, you know, there's no doubt that, that and I think it's already happening, there's a lot more YouTube channels coming out now doing doing a similar thing. And there's a lot of really good, not, not that I really see them as competition. I think media is different in that sense. It's, you know, if two people are writing a book, it's not really that one's against the other because there's sort of a lot of a massive audience for these sorts of things. But I think uh, there's so many good individual players in this space. You named a few before. There's Ben Felton in the UK now and also Ben Parks has been around for a while. These guys are getting huge views. And uh, Stephen Scullion, I think, is, uh, is, a, is doing really well now. And there's not too many guys at his level that are producing the quality of content he is. So that's great. But yeah, now it's really, we're sort of back in the same situation now, thinking how do we, how do we keep doing this? How do we keep evolving and how do we keep improving? And it's, it's getting tough at this point because there's not a whole lot more new mediums to go to. Yes, I guess you said like it's getting tougher to evolve and to kind of stay ahead because you guys are kind of really leading this space at the moment. What do you see as the next thing for Sweat Elite? Yeah, I've really wondered if we should really go sideways and dive into the space. Like there's a few players out there, I won't name any names, but basically doing the news of the sport. So the updates about when someone breaks a world record or or do basically a weekly recap of what's going on. Like we've never really done that before. We've only really dived into what a training build-up looks like and published it. So we've never really been responding to like what's happening in the news. So when an athlete changes brand sponsorships, like goes from Nike to Adidas, or when there's a big field name for a Boston Marathon, that we've never really been into. I mean, anyone listening that knows us would agree that we've, we've never really done that before. We've never been announcing any sort of news or, or covering really the live events. We've never really done that. I do wonder if that's somewhere we should go. I haven't really made a, a strict call on that yet because that's a pretty big undertaking. It sort of means... You have to be online 24-7. Ideally, you don't, uh, well, not really, not, 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 not literally 24 hours a day, but you've got to be a lot more responsive to what's happening out there. It probably also means, you know, if you want to take it really seriously and be a leader, you take no, day, like, no days off. <laughs> um, and okay. for a small operation, well, you've really got to be there seven days a week in a way or, or definitely on the weekend, that's for sure, where most of the, uh, the, the events take place. So that's a big undertaking. Um, you also, ideally, if you want to be one of the leaders, have people at the events, whether it be photographers or videographers or people doing interviews. So that's a, that's a whole big beast in itself to have people at all the events. That's not very easy to do. And it's also quite expensive if you don't have sponsors. So, you know, I have wondered that for a little while. We've been uh, quite a few people have sort of said, why don't we do that? So that's, that's a space. The other space that we're really trying to roll the dice in is triathlon. So do basically what we're doing now with video content and podcast content in a different sport. Um, I have a strong interest in triathlon. There's obviously the overlap of the running leg, which is, well, most triathletes would probably say it's, (laughs) I'm not sure if that says the most important leg, but it's obviously like if if you can't run, you're you're in trouble in the triathlon. I mean, you can say that about any any of those three disciplines, I guess, but we've been pretty focused on doing that. And and we've, we've, we've done, I think, some decent stuff in that space, but there's a lot more we could do. But yeah, I think Japan is a big one for us because anyone that's super familiar with the sport would be familiar with or would have at least heard of the name Ekiden, which is the entire, which is what the whole Japanese running scene sort of revolves around. It always happens on the 2nd and 3rd of January. And that's 
a huge event in Japan. There's some 35% of the country watch the event. I think that's tens of millions of people are actually watching the Ekaden uh, relays. And no, I don't think any company reporting or publishing content in English has really done a very good job of covering that before. So we want to do our best to, to do that. And it's not going to be easy because the English language is not a very, it's not very ubiquitous there. It's not a, there's not a lot of people speaking English. So we, we, we have to, yeah, I'm lucky to have met two people that speak both uh, English and Japanese that are Japanese citizens. So they're going to be helping me. I'm going to be leaning around quite a lot in the next couple of months, but um, yeah, I'm going next week. I'm really looking forward to that. It's definitely going to be a challenge to produce content in a, in a language that's not, not English uh, because it's going to be predominantly in Japanese, but we're going to do voiceovers and, and, and text overlay in English. So that's going to be a big challenge, but I'm looking forward to it. So it sounds like you've got a lot planned for, for the next little while. It's um, going to be a pretty busy time. I think it's this time. Next week, I'm, I'm flying there on Thursday afternoon so from, from Melbourne. So yeah, looking forward to it. You've been traveling a lot over the last couple of years by the looks with, the, with Sweat Elite. How do you find that? Wow, that's a that's probably a, a whole podcast uh, question and answer in itself. I've I've been very fortunate to to travel a lot in the last sort of since I started Sweat Elite. I've always had a pretty pretty big travel bug, I guess. And there's huge pros and cons to traveling the way that I do. I think there's more cons than most people would would realize. I think they're cons that grow on you over time that originally aren't cons. So. Uh, <laughs> What I mean by that is at first, I think the idea of getting rid of your rental and just floating about is great. And it, and it is great to, you know, to some extent, but I think there's something I've never really been able to put into words very, very accurately, but there's something really, really uh, beautiful or lacking the right word about having a home with your own space that you can always come back to and storage. And I sometimes really miss that. Just having a place where I can come back to, I know for sure the internet works fast. I know for sure all the power plugs work. I know for sure it's safe or the kitchen's going to work, all these things. I think it's one of those things that at first when you take off and you, and you explore, you don't really care about that. You just say, I don't need that. I don't need that security. I don't need that that base, so to speak. But I don't know if it's an age thing. I mean, I'm 36 now and I think the longer I go at this, the more I want to go back to having that. So that's something. I think the other thing too is, you know, I just recently watched uh, the Netflix series. I don't think it's called Live to 100, but it's the it's a series about why people live to very old ages in these certain blue zones around the world. And, and the main reason why people live longer than others, uh, there's about three or four big ones, but one is community and having friends and family around you as much as possible. And so when you're traveling on the road like I am, you don't have that. You basically are always solo. I'm very lucky that I've um, got my, my, my girlfriend, Reem, who travels around with me quite a lot now. But even still, I really miss having a lot of friends and close family around uh, often. So I think they're two big things that grow on you over time. But there's a, there's a lot more. But I think if you, if you let me keep talking now, I'll probably go on for <laughs> too long. So, yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been, a, been an adventure for sure. But I'm actually about to, to move to Chicago more permanently. So that'll be good. You're moving to Chicago. Is he going to set up base there or...? Yes, so that's where Reem is from, uh, my, my partner. She, she grew up there and, and has family and friends there. And being in the States is going to be pretty good for me and the company because uh, a lot of stuff we can do in the US. You know, you realize pretty quickly when you look for a place to live, it's only really your own home or your partner's home because it's pretty hard to get a residency permit anywhere else. It's sort of possible in a few places for us Australians, like New Zealand, we can go and live in. Um, but, you know, we can't just go and move to the UK. Uh, we have to go through a whole lot of processes. We, you can, we can go on holiday, for sure, for three months or some, sometimes six months. But moving somewhere is a whole different beast. So um, I'm able to get the green card via, via Ream. 
and in February we'll we'll move there and start that process and uh, and that'll be home for a while. So we'll see. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember seeing a post on your Instagram where it was, you know, it was like 2 a.m. and you were like outside a cafe just like uploading using the cafe's internet. And I was, I just remember being like, well, just really on the grind. <laughs> I think you're referring to when I was maybe in Fontremeau at the, yeah, at, <laughs> I think so. That was a that was a bit of a struggle that that day because the the Wi Fi in our apartment didn't work and it also didn't work anywhere near us. So I really needed to get a video up for ASICs. So I went down to this local cafe where I knew it worked and I sat in the car because it was closed the cafe, but the internet reached the car. So I sat so I sat in the car uploading all night. It was uh, not 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 fun, but got it done. What an adventure! So you've been doing this for now like six seven years or so, running Sweat Elite. You would have seen a lot of the best coaches, a lot of the best athletes, a lot of the really high performers of the sport. Yeah, what have been some of the big takeaways that you've seen from looking and seeing how these guys train and how they perform at such a high level? What's been some of your biggest takeaways? Yeah, sure. I don't know if I'm going to say anything here that's that's probably going to be unique, but you know, consistency is just the big one. And you hear that you hear that all the time, so that's not a very interesting answer. But it really is. And when you look at any professional athlete that's reached the very top or the Olympic final or anything near that, their consistency is just is just insane. But it's not necessarily about running every single day. It's about just being really intelligent and really smart about when to push really hard and when not to. And I think that's also sort of blends into the topic of consistency. But, you know, for, for example, I, I think I've been a culprit of this and I know many people that do about sort of thinking like you should train hard all year, even when you're a long way away from a race. I, I really do think that for most people, that's probably not a very good idea. And picking your time to really work really hard and then also picking a time of the year where you're able to run, but not really go to the well at all and having the confidence that that's okay and that you're going to be able to get into shape fast enough, I think is is really keen. I think that only really comes from experience. So that's something that I've I've really noticed. And I think this, you know, the, the other big one is is just really one percenters, obviously really important. And what I mean by one percent is it's making sure your diet is 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 good, and making sure that your diet means that your body weight's going to be optimal come race day. Doing the necessary stretching, doing the necessary strength work, uh, using things like continuous glucose monitors to track how your fueling is. All these small things, I think really add up to to a pro, quite a large performance gain. So if you pick any one of them individually and go, how much is stretching going to help me? The answer is probably not much. But if you answer if you answer the question of how much are all of those things that I mentioned, maybe plus one or two more, maximizing your quality of sleep, if you do all of those things, I, I think that the gains can be quite large. And so I think almost all of the the athletes that I've had the privilege of working with are all very are all very understanding of that and are all very disciplined in order to go, okay, it's not just, <laughs> so I'm, I'm inherently, I think because I've got no aspirations of being a pro, I'm, I'm pretty lazy with those one percenters, to be honest. I'm, I'm more of a guy that just runs and I don't can really be bothered to do the rest. And, and I'm aware of that. And I sometimes think, I, you know, I really should, if I want to run under 220, maybe I should do these things. But uh, I, I've noticed that all the, all the pros are, are very, very diligent about those things and making sure that, you know, they're not drinking alcohol. They're not they're doing everything they possibly can to sleep eight hours. They're doing all these small things. So that's very, very clear and something that I think a lot of people maybe don't value enough. I guess you also do a lot of running yourself and that's been a big goal of yours to break 220 in the marathon, right? Have you found that like watching how the pros train and like really being absorbed in that world has helped your training in the way you structure things? Yeah, 
For sure. I've got a lot of ideas from the athletes that I've worked with. I think it's very motivating too to be filming or to be at a training session when, when people are doing these things that are just, just out of this world fast in training. It's definitely good for the, the motivation. And I've definitely noticed training sessions that people have done and been like, that's very suitable for me at this time of year, for example. And I think I mentioned that we're, you know, we're trying to expand into triathlon and I'll never forget an interview that I listened to maybe about a year ago of, uh, there's two triathletes from Norway called Christian Blumenfeldt and Gustav Eden, and they're probably the best two male triathletes in the world or at least they're, they're sort of two of the top five. And their coach, who's a just mega genius at this stuff, he, he said something that I very rarely hear coaches say, and it's that he said a really important factor of the training is do the athletes really want to do it and do they really enjoy that particular workout? And I, I very rarely hear coaches say that. They just prescribe training and they'll be like, you know, do a one-hour tempo run. And I think, oh, like a one-hour tempo run? Like that might be effective, but like that's the quickest way to get someone to hate running, you know, like just one pace the whole time. And, and I'm not saying that's, that's a brilliant workout. Like that's very, very uh, effective and very, very specific to say a marathon training plan. But, you know, I'll try to spice it up and do, if we want one hour work, worth of threshold running, which is a lot, I would maybe try and change it up and do five minutes where you're just slower than threshold, five minutes where you're at threshold, and then five minutes where you're five seconds per K faster than threshold. And then you might cycle through that that's 15 minutes, you might do that four times through just to make it a little bit different in your own mind as to your paces and they're changing a little bit. And so I think just being around these athletes so much has given me a lot of different ideas as to how to make training more interesting and more enjoyable. And luckily for me, I coach 60 people now and I'm able to to use you know this information that I'm learning from the athletes and, and I'm often not giving them the same workouts as the pro athletes, but I'm often scaling it down 20 or 30% and making it slightly shorter so that it suits them. And uh, I think the response has been good. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of those athletes would re- really be benefiting from that because if if you're seeing how the pros are training and, and you're testing a lot of that stuff out on yourself, that would be so valuable for them. So uh, one other thing I also wanted to ask you is you've been running Sweat Elite for a while as a business and I saw somewhere that you you did finance and banking at university and then you went on to do a couple of things in business what have been some of your biggest takeaways from running a business for six to seven years or some of your lessons you've learned along the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I did study finance, banking and finance and economics in, in university. Spent a little bit of time working in an investment banking company. I spent a bit of time working as a manager in a flight center, which was obviously not really related to finance, but it was more related to the travel industry and management. I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned, though, as a founder of a company is take risks as, as much as you can and be completely okay with it failing. And of course, there's a number of caution points there. You don't want to plow a whole lot of money or maybe a very large percentage of your bankroll into something blindly. You know, you want to be very careful about where you're placing your investments and your, and your money in order to grow in the company. But I think, uh, you know, calculated risks where you can really think through, okay, well, what's the worst that can happen here if I take this step and put this money into this application or, or whatnot, because we make mistakes and fail at little things all the time. And, and I think the more time I've spent in this space, the more I realize that every company does. Every Pretty much every single company has to learn lessons along the way from failure. And I think early on, I was very scared to fail and I was very worried about, okay, well, if that goes wrong, then that's a disaster. But when I really, really 
break it down. I go, no, it's not a disaster. It's just going to make us realize that that doesn't, that doesn't work. And this is probably the, the alternative is probably going to work. So I think that's probably the biggest one. It's basically at a point now when I think anyone that's made a company live more than two years or made a company that's been able to hire some people and, and, and grow to a level of being somewhat well-known, they would have all made a couple of probably pretty big errors along the way. I'm almost sure of it. So, I mean, I'm watching the, uh, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I think it is. I'm watching the Netflix series right now about how Uber started. It's called Super Pumped. And I'm fairly sure it's pretty accurate because I remember reading some news articles back in 2018, 2019, you know, about some of their huge mistakes. And it's, it's being played now in the series. And oh my goodness, that company had so many issues early on. And I mean, look at it now. So <laughs> same thing with Facebook. I mean, I'm, I'm labeling companies that are thousands and millions of times bigger than ours, but it, it's sort of beside the point. Like it's, it's really a case of you have to make these, these mistakes and, and make these failures in order to, to continue on. So I think that's the, that's the biggest lesson for sure. Because it's pretty cool, I guess, looking back at like you obviously built quite a big company now that pretty much everyone in the running space knows that's what elite. And so it's really cool like hearing you reflect back on, on that journey. What, what were some of like the risky moments? I mean, one of the biggest ones probably was linking back to when you discovered us. It was getting, you know, paying $10,000 for me and my colleague Tate to fly to Kenya and stay there for a month, having never spoken to Elliot before. And never, never having anyone tell us for sure that we could join him. Like we just took that risk. And in our mind, it was like, okay, well, if he says no, then we're still going to experience Kenyan running scene another way. Like we're going to maybe go and focus on another athlete that will be nowhere near as big as him, but at least we'll get to go and experience Kenya, do some running ourselves. So the worst case scenario was really not that bad. But the best case scenario is actually having him you know, say yes to us joining him in a workout and film him and put him online. And that's, and that's what happened. Um, I think most of the risks have been about just flying somewhere and spending five, six thousand dollars and just hoping for the best, having absolutely no guarantee that why I'm going there is going to work. I think that's probably happened about six or seven times. They're the, they're the big ones, I think. There's been a couple of smaller ones, you know, about investing in certain applications like an email marketing. They're, they're pretty small in the grand scheme of things, so pretty small risks. But oftentimes I think it's about... Uh, you know, when I moved to Boulder in 2021, I, I thought to myself, Paul Chalimo's never going to say yes to us, film him. And I sent him a message, I think in the second week I was there and just sort of said, he didn't follow us on Instagram at the time. And I said, hey, Paul, it's Matt here. I don't know if you know. And for those not familiar, Paul Chalimo's an Olympic uh, medalist in the 5K twice, uh, Tokyo and Rio Olympics, competes for the USA. And I sent him a message and just said, hey, you know, it's Matt here from Swidley. I don't know if you know who we are. We do media. I'd love to join you in a session and film it. And he wrote back straight away, followed us back and just said, yeah, sounds good. Come down next week on Tuesday. And like, I remember getting that reply being like, I was almost not going to send that because I, I just really didn't think that was going to go anywhere. I didn't think he'd ever respond. And so, yes, tiny risk. I mean, what, what was the downside there? Nothing really. He wouldn't have replied. But we ended up doing, I think, four workout videos with him that have seen 3.2 million views or something like that. So very glad I sent the message. And uh, yeah, that's probably not the best example because the da- the downside there and the and the worst case scenario is, is really not a big deal. But I think just being bold and taking and, and maybe just trying things that you maybe most of you is saying this is probably not going to work. Just try it. Just just see what happens. <laughs> We've done that a lot. <laughs> so before I kind of switch into the final segment, I'd love to ask you: Is there any advice you'd have for people in their twenties who are maybe just figuring life out? What have been some of your, yeah, I guess, lessons from life? I'm glad you asked this because I've definitely been through a lot. I think like anyone in their mid-30s, I've been through 
you know, phases where I've really had no idea what I'm doing and, and gotten pretty down about it. You know, I've had phases where I've really been sure about what I'm doing. And I think ultimately one thing we have to realize, and I understand that not everyone listening to this is probably in Australia or, or, or in the UK or in the US, but we're extremely, this is going off topic of, of, uh, of sweat elite for a minute, but we're, we're extremely fortunate and very lucky to be living where we are, uh, you and I, for example. And once again, I'm going to repeat, maybe there's some people listening to this that are in, in less fortunate countries or, or maybe they're in Palestine or potentially they're in somewhere like uh, Kenya. But, you know, for people like us, I think there's so much safety and security around our lifestyle that we really don't have that much to worry about. I think a lot of people's concern and, and depression perhaps or, or downside might be because they lack a, a strong identity. They, they lack something to tell people when they ask what they do with themselves. And I used to worry a lot about that and I used to always be quite self-conscious about that. But over time, I've I've really tried to disconnect myself from that and to the point where if I if I meet someone that's outside the running world on a plane or something like that and they ask what I do, I'm never going to dive into specifically what I do. I'm just going to say I work in marketing <laughs> or, or I work in this and that because I, I just don't really want my entire identity to be wrapped around my job. And I think that's something that I've changed perspective on quite a lot as I've gotten older. I just think if Sweat Elite is, is wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow by by if our website shut down for some reason, I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to fall into a heap and, and be worried about the future and this and that and worry about my identity being gone. I just want that to be, that's obviously a, a, a it's a big, I'm going to need to find something else to do, but I, I don't want that to be my sole identity. And I think that's something I would love to tell my 21 or even 25 year old self to not worry about that so much. Like look how lucky you are to be living where you are and to have the people around you that you do and the safety that you do. I think that's a big one. I think really uh, the second one is, is really sort of repeating what I said with your previous question. And it's just like, if you have an itch that you want to scratch, and what I mean by that is if, if you really think, why isn't something already out there like this? So that's what I was thinking with Sweat Elite. I was like, there's Runner's World, there's Flowtrack, there's a few other media companies, but there's no media source out there that's really appealing for really serious runners. If, if you're in a space where you're asking a similar question to do with something else, then why don't you try and start it? Like, have a, firstly, have a good look to see if there actually is lots of players out there already. And even if there is, that still potentially opens up the, you know, you still potentially could go and compete in that space. But if, if there's really an idea that you've had for a while and you haven't pulled the trigger on it and you really want it to be out there in the world, I just, I just really don't see any really firm reason why you wouldn't try and make it happen. Now, um don't have kids, so I can't, you know, I can't really speak to how busy people get when they do. But I really do think that, that taking the risk and just trying to make something happen, is, uh, it, it does seem daunting at first, but I think breaking it down into small steps and just, just taking one at a time, before you know it, you'll have looked back and gone, wow, I've actually made a lot of progress here. And I think that's something that I think I wish I'd done maybe a little bit more a little bit earlier on in life. Wow, that's some awesome advice. I feel like I'm going to have to go write that down in my notebook afterwards and just like meditate on that. So I wanted to, in the, in the final segment, dive into just a couple of fun questions called the, the, the rapid finishes segment. So it's just four quick questions to get to know you for a bit of fun. So who's your favorite runner of all time? The first person that comes to mind is probably Kennedy Sivakili from Ethiopia. How good. What a runner. <laughs> uh, Favorite coach of all time? Uh, 
I'd probably have to say Renato Canova. I've probably copied most of his principles in my own training that have seen my marathon time and half marathon time come down a lot. And I think while his training can be brutal and it can break some people, I think if you're smart and you can adapt it well to your own ability, it's it's very effective. And uh, if you were to have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would you want to have dinner with? All right. Um, straight off the top of my head, the first one would be Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla and SpaceX. Uh, I just find him just very fascinating. Uh, his work ethic and what he does is just is just ridiculous. Uh, I think the second one would be probably Joe Rogan. <laughs> so I just listened to their podcast. Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan's podcast yesterday, and I listened to them for two and a half hours, and I was like, I could listen to these guys all day. Like They're just so interesting. So I think those two. Outside of those two, I would say probably Ryan Reynolds. I just really like, I've watched a lot of his movies and I just really think he's very entertaining. So I'd probably go with those three. Wow. That would be an awesome table to, to sit at and have dinner with. I can imagine that would be an awesome one. And then final question. Uh, what's your favorite book or what book recommendation would you have for any listeners that, that you loved? I've uh, got a few. I think the the first one that comes to mind would be Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek that I read in t- very early on when it came out. I think it was 2010, just about how to start a business and to uh, how to outsource and run a business very efficiently so that it doesn't consume you. So the 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Another ebook that I've recently listened to, uh, The Power of Now by Eckhard is it Tolle, I think, about about psychology, basically, and how to uh, stay in the moment more, more than you more than you are, I guess. They're probably the two the two big ones, but there's quite a lot. I, I really like all of Mark Manson's books. Yeah, he's he's a brilliant author, and, and I highly recommend following him on, on online as well on, on Instagram. Uh, although I haven't read his book about Will Smith yet, I'm, I'm pretty keen on on reading that. But I'd say I'd say those ones are the first ones that I would recommend. Okay, they sound like some good books. That sounds like I'm going to be busy for the next few weeks uh, reading some good ones. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Matt. Yeah, it's been awesome hearing about the story of Sweat Elite and and how that all came about and the awesome lessons you've learned along the way. If any of the listeners who want to um, go follow Sweat Elite or get coached by you or follow you on Instagram, where would be uh, the best place to, to follow you or follow Sweat Elite? Yeah, I'd say probably... I'd say probably the YouTube channel is probably where we upload most or the, or the podcast feed. So if you just type in Sweat Elite, you'll find both of those. You know, I'm on Instagram, just Matt Ingler Fox, uh, Sweat Elite's on Instagram. We're not super active on Instagram, to be honest. At least the Sweat Elite isn't. I'm probably somewhat active on there. But yeah, I'd say they're, they're, the, they're the places to go and follow. I'd say if you, if you really just want to consume good content, I'd say the, um, the YouTube channel and the podcast. Okay, awesome. We'll, uh, we'll put the links to those in the show notes below so everyone can go and find those. 